This message entitled, The Impossibility of the Christian Life, was delivered to Christ Rock Bible Church on January 22nd, 2023, by the Reverend Roy D. Warren, Jr. The scripture reference is John 2, 13-25. Praise the Lord. John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25. 13 through 25. Now, before I actually read those, um, I want to set the stage for it. And you can see that yourself as you're in there, okay? We spoke of Jesus gathering up his disciples. We mentioned briefly about bringing together Andrew and Peter uh, to follow Jesus. But more specifically, we zeroed in on Philip and Nathaniel in verses 43 through 51, okay? And that's what we saw last time. Then there's this incredible story of Jesus' first miracle, okay? And that is the turning of the water into the wine, or into most likely a, a, a fresh wine, or a, a grape juice would be uh, more likely. But anyway, um, that, and that's in, that's in chapter 2, the first part. But immediately after that, there is this time that Jesus takes to cleanse the temple, clear the temple out of all of the other stuff that had become important to Judaism and wasn't supposed to be important and wasn't supposed to be there in the temple. Now, we all remember that he did this when he came into Jerusalem before his crucifixion, okay? And that's in the Gospel of Mark, and that's true. But that's the one we remember more than anything else, okay? But guess what? Jesus evidently did it twice. No, this is not a mistake. No, John got it, didn't get it wrong. No, Mark didn't even get it wrong. It didn't just happen one time. It happened two times. Okay? Which means he did it once at the beginning of his ministry, but by the time he was done with his ministry, it hadn't taken hold. They hadn't listened they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They were continuing on in their sin. And so he does it again. Talk about the mercy of God. You know, that Jesus would take the time to do this thing twice. And now remember, this is not going to be a popular thing with Judaism. This is not going to be things that are going to get him a pat on the back. It might get him a slug in the side, but it's not going to get a pat on the back. Okay, he, you know, this, this is not going to be a favorable thing uh, for everybody else. But it did happen twice, and we're going to zero in today on that first time that it happened. All right, let me go ahead and pause there for a second. I'm going to light the three candles of our Epiphany uh, line of, of candles, line of lights, uh, and the thing I want you to see in the process, of course, is that even in that spot on the table over there, it's, it's getting lighter. It's, I don't mean lighter like not weighing as much. I mean lighter like there's, there's something shining here. Okay? And that's the, that's the imagery. That's the, the point. Okay? All right. Same thing is true with the Advent wreath. As you light one more candle, one more candle, and so it's getting brighter and brighter and brighter. All right, back over to John chapter 2. 
Praise the Lord. I don't know how many of you are uh, into golf. Um, I know that's, that's one thing, Cindy. You know, her dad used to golf, and she liked, uh, you know, she would have gone to watch him play golf, but put it on TV, boy, and she'd have nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, uh, but anyway, um, I just, you know, Joel and I have gone a couple of times. There's a golf course just right down the road from Cindy's mom and dad where they used to live along the lake, and we've done, we did that at least once, maybe twice. And, um, but just kind of what they call <clears throat> duffer. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> we'll get to the end of the course, but not in good order. <laughs> you know, because <clears throat> we're, we're not good at it, <laughs> or I'm not anyway. But, and I remember the time that uh, my dad wanted to take both Cindy and myself out to golf at a local golf course near him. And so we did. We went over to this golf course, and so we're going around through the different holes. It's only nine holes, so it's not a huge deal. But we got to where there was this water hazard. There was this pond, okay? And uh, Kerplunk, uh, Cindy's ball went in, okay? So he got out another ball for her. I think that happened like three times, okay? Finally, he just suggested, why don't we put the ball on the other side of the pond, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> he, was, he was losing too many of his golf balls. <laughs> okay, and, and, um, and it would be very easy to get it in the pond. I mean, she proved that. <laughs> but it could happen to any of us. Well, there was this uh, story told of this, uh, this golfer, wasn't doing too hot. He was having a terrible sort of day with his game. Uh, not a professional by any means. He was just out there uh, playing golf. First, he bogeyed every hole, often just two to six feet from a birdie. Finally, on the 18th hole, he was um, just, a, a, just one foot away from having a birdie that particular time. Now, get this. But, but So he go ahead and he lined up the putt. And he was all ready to go on the thing. But the ball missed the hole, get this, three times. It missed the hole three times. Now, if you wa ever watch golf on TV, you can see how that would happen. Because the professionals walk up to it when they're only like this far from it, you know. They just walk up and they just go. They don't even, they don't get all lined up. They don't, you know, because it's so easy. It's so easy. I saw Tiger Woods try to make a putt one time, and it went right around the edge of the cup. Just twirled and didn't go in. He was, he was not happy, okay? But, I mean, even the pros have this problem. And this guy, it, it happened, it, he took three putts, okay? And uh, it just kept going around. It twice anyway, it went around. And all of a sudden, he just yelled out, top of his lungs, top of his lungs, that's it. That's it. I'm going to give it all up. And he yelled that, like I say, at the top of his lungs. So there was another golfer nearby on another uh, green uh, who um, yelled back over to him, Oh, don't take it so hard, old buddy. Just because you had a bad day today doesn't mean you should give up golf. 
Oh, replied the frustrated duffer, I, I don't really plan to give up on golf. I'm going to give up the ministry. That's kind of a drastic decision. <laughs> it would be far better to give up golf. <laughs> uh, unless, of course, God was calling him out of it. <laughs> okay? And there are some people that are in it for the wrong purposes and the wrong reasons. And, and, uh, and, and it is a good thing that God does call them out. I don't know what was going on there. But he's just was fed up. Maybe he wanted to be able to get more dramatic in his loss and yell and scream and swear and, and so forth and so on. I don't know. Uh, and maybe he thought he had to get out of the ministry to do just that. So the question then becomes golf or ministry? Golf or ministry? Um, <clears throat> it would not be probably a good thing for me to take up golf because it would be very frustrating for me. Um, there's a fellow from our last church who golfs quite a bit. And he asked me one day, he says, you want to go golfing with me sometime? And I thought, this is not going to go well <laughs> uh, because I don't play golf, you know. Well, anyway, it never worked out. Timing and everything never, never worked out. But he goes like, I don't know, three, four times a week through the summer golfing. So he's going to be far better uh, at it. I mean, if it takes me 10 hits to get to the... To, to the green, that's just the way it is. Uh, but anyway, it, it didn't, uh, it never did work out. We never did actually go golfing. Um, praise the Lord. Because uh, I, I could just see it coming. It would not go well. <laughs> and pretty soon he'd be putting the ball on the other side of the lake so that it, it doesn't, go, you know, he doesn't lose 10 balls or whatever. Pastor once told the story. Um, he says, I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, I said to myself, this is the easiest thing in the world. Unless you're playing golf too. Because <laughs> like I say, it can be pretty frustrating. What a deal. I walked down the aisle of our country church and I believed in Jesus and I said so. I was baptized, and hence my Christian life began. I somehow had the idea that I could go ahead and live just as I had always been living, and, and when, not if, but when I did something wrong, I, I would ask God to forgive me, and all would be well. If I died prematurely as a member of God's family, I would most certainly go right to heaven. I, ha I had this Christianity thing licked. That was his vision. That was his view of all of this. But then he said, I had a Bible study teacher named Mr. Alexander, and he kind of exploded that idea in my mind. He taught that the Bible to us is very straight and very clear. Um, he ran a shoe store on the side, um, but he kind of, wasn't it Moody that was a shoe salesman? Yeah, I think. Yeah, similar kind of story, I guess, but it wasn't moody. Anyway, he ran a shoe store, but he, had, but he was an anointed teacher, and he made me realize that receiving Christ was easy, okay? But living the Christian life was not. And part of the reason for his, for his misunderstanding here is that's not the goal of Christianity, to get you to receive Jesus. It's to surrender to Jesus, Receive is another word. Receive just, you know, 
come on in, Jesus, you know. And No, I mean, surrender is what everyone's being called to, okay? Living the Christian life is not something that just comes naturally or comes easily. In fact, many times it was downright difficult for him. Finally, he says, as I began to study the word of God on my own, I came to the conclusion that the Christian life was not hard. The Christian life was impossible. In his own strength, he's talking about. To do it in his own accord, in his own way, with his own power, in his own spirit. And, and he went on to say, he says, I could completely identify with Paul when he said that he did what he did not wish to do and did not do what he wished to do. If Paul struggled, then what hope was there for me? He said to himself. Then I discovered, he did, then I discovered that I could not live the Christian life under my own power any more than I could get right with God on my own merit. I began to uh, understand the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And as he fills my life with himself, he enables me. See, that's what, isn't that what all led up to what we're doing here in a season of Epiphany? It was the disciples, they all gathered on Pentecost and what happened? They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And then we saw that happen again and again and again. And then, you know, Stephen and so forth and so on. Remember all that? That was a journey that we were on. And it was all leading up to continuing that journey now. Okay? All right. He enables me to live and walk in victory. Okay? So I came full circle, he said. The Christian life is easy. But the Christian life is also hard. And not only that... But the Christian life is impossible. Now he's talking about in his own understanding and in his own strength. Okay? But with God's spirit. Huh? It's God that does it. That's the point, I think. The empowered Christian life is exciting. Uh, indwelling, that's what the Bible calls it, an indwelling spirit, praise God, amen? And that power comes from the Holy Spirit himself. Glory to God, amen? All right, and I think that is just the point. It's impossible to live the way God wants us to live in our own strength, Every, you got to have the Spirit. Isn't that what I've been saying really all along? The, everybody's got to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. Before it comes down to the end of anybody's time on this planet, they've got to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus called people to be filled with his Spirit. Did it for Paul, did it for Stephen, did it for everybody. Okay? All right. Got to have the spirit. If, if there is one thing that this shows, it is the deficiency. And I'm talking about, we come back here to chapter 2. It's the deficiency of Judaism. And it's the same thing about when you, when you consider other religions. You know, like Buddhism and Hinduism and all of that kind of stuff. It's deficient 
Okay? Because it doesn't have Jesus, for one thing. All right? Okay. It totally twists things around. John chapter 2, if you're there, let's take a look at it. Okay? I'm not going to go clear to the end of where we're going, because I want to save that for the end. Okay? But I will go from 13 to 22. Here we go. John chapter 2, verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, praise God. Went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. Okay, now this is, by the way, this is going to take up a lot of room in the temple. You know, because you're going to have this pen for the, for the sheep and this pen for the lambs and, you know, and it's, you know, and then you got your money changers with their tables, you know, all spread out and they got their money all stacked up. It's going to take room and that's going to leave less room for everything else, namely prayer. Not to mention, it's going to be super noisy. It's going to be like going into a grocery store and hearing all kinds of conversations at the same time. Okay? That's one thing that, that how the MS worked in Cindy is that it made it very difficult to hear things when everybody is talking. Okay, Because you got this person talking and that person talking and this one talking too. And, and it just oh, it was a mumble jumble kind of thing. And with the MS, that made it uh, even more difficult. I mean, it's not easy anyway, hearing people when you got all kinds of, you know, and you're trying to zero in on what they're saying. But with the MS, she couldn't, she couldn't uh, deal with that. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, okay, uh, a whip, that's what this scourge is, tragelion, okay, it's a, it's a whip, the Roman lash used for public punishment, it could be a cat of nine tails in that it had uh, nine strands of leather and then would also have bits of bone, metal, you know, whatever, tied to it. And that would really tear up your, your back pretty good. Okay, but it didn't have to have that. Anyway, so he made a scourge of small cords. Probably didn't have all that extra equipment on it. He drove them all out of the temple. Drove them all out, okay? That would clear out the place. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers as well and overthrew the tables, okay? Overthrew the tables. And then it says in verse 16 that he said to those that were selling the doves, take these things hence. Take these things. Now get this. The word take there is not what you'd think it is. I would have thought it might have been the Greek word lambeno. And specifically the definition would be to take with force. Okay? All right? But it liter here's what it literally means. To lift up, up, up and away, kind of like, remember the song from the fifth dimension back in the 60s or 70s or whenever it was, you know, up. Up and away, you know, da, 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 you know that. Anyway, that's what it sounds like. To lift up and away, to lift the anchor, anchors away, to lift the anchor, okay, to sail away, and to expiate sin. 
Take these things hence. Sail them away. And you can see how you could use that word for the doves because open the cages and away they go. You know, sailing away off on their wings. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Okay, of merchandise. The Greek word here is emporion. Emporion, very close to the word that we've heard around, probably. Emporium, which is what? A mall, okay? A mart. That's, you know, a place to buy and sell a bunch of stuff. Okay? And basically what Judaism was saying in all of this is that you need us to have the right stuff for what you're going to do here. And you didn't need that. The fact was they were cheating people. They were, they were fooling people. They were looking at their animals that they were bringing for their sacrifices. And, ah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't yank out some, some fur or some hair and, and say, see, there's a bare spot. You know, that's, this is no good. you got to buy one of mine. You got to have a perfect offering in order to be able to do this, okay? And and so it was by their own, their own zeal. And his disciples then remembered that it was written, "The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up." In other words, it's I'm I'm very drawn. Or Jesus, basically, it's saying of Jesus in Psalm 69. By the way. Psalm 69, verse 19, if you want to know where it comes from. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He's consumed by doing the right thing in the temple and selling all this stuff and making all this noise and making it impossible for people to zero in on God because it was noisy and it was stinky and so forth. You know, that stuff's got to go. All right? We'd have some of the same issues if we did that here today. I mean, here we are in church. All of a sudden, we bring in about 100 sheep, maybe some cattle or whatever, right in here. And they're right down all the aisles, and they're all not smelling great and, and you know, doing their thing and so forth, making a big mess. And, you know, the sheep are bleating and the cows are mooing and, and so forth and so on. And how are you focusing on God that way? How are you going to do it? Okay, that was the problem. You're, making, you're turning the house of prayer into a place of buying and selling, merchandising. Verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, now see, they got nerve. These people really got nerve because Jesus comes in and makes it clear. He's making it obvious. He's making it conspicuous what this place is for. And that he has authority to come in and say these things because he is the son of the father. Okay? So the Jews come up to him and they say, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? You know? What sign, what indicator do you have to give us that shows your authority for thinking that you can come in and stop what we're doing here? Okay, is it ceremonial or is it supernatural? Good question. They were confronting him as to his authority. And Jesus answered, now watch this. And Jesus answered and said unto them, 
destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And boy, did that set off a firestorm. Because later on in his ministry, when he was about done, and he was being tried, okay, tried before the Sanhedrin and so forth, what did they say? They had false witnesses come up, and, and they said that he said he was going to destroy this temple, referring to the building. He did not say that. And here's what he said, destroy this temple. He's talking about his body. You go ahead and destroy me, and in three days, I will raise it up. He wasn't even talking about the building. I mean, the building would take years and years to put back up if you destroyed it, okay? The Greek word for destroy here is luo. It means to loosen, it means to break up, it means to dissolve, it means to put off. Actually, it turns out that Herod had started, to, this is called Herod's temple, because he's the one that authorized it, and he started to build it, not him personally, but he had people come in and build the temple. Herod began to build in 20 BC, and now it's 30 AD, give or take a year or two in the zero to one category, okay? But still, you know, started in 20 BC, and now it's about 30. So there's 50 years right there. And, and they even confront him about that. They said, 40 and six years was this temple in the building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? In other words, if it's destroyed, you go ahead and destroy it like you're claiming to. That's not what he was saying. He was talking about his body. But they took it to mean the temple, and you think you're going to rear it up in just three days? You're out of your gourd. You're out of your mind, Jesus. All right? I don't know if you remember this. It, was, it really was striking, and I think we did show it in a Bible study. But do you remember the movie Jesus? It was taken from the Gospel of John, and it was specifically word for word. I mean, it was. Even the narration and all the different cues that are given throughout the Gospel of John, it's, it's word for word just what was happening, okay? All right? In that movie, there was clutter everywhere. There were boards over there. There was scaffolding over there. There was tools laying around over here by some other sawdust and piles and so forth and so on. It was picturing that they're still working on the temple, and even in the day that he came, okay, which was at the beginning of his ministry, so it was about 30 A.D., okay? So the movie was even showing that very thing, that it was, it was still ongoing, okay? They make mention of it. They say 40 and 6 years was this temple and building, and you think you're going to bring it back up to speed in three days? Okay, but the Bible goes ahead and explains, but he spake of the temple of his body. There you go. I mean, you can't go wrong when Jesus says what's really going on. When he comes out and he says, I'm not talking about this building, you guys. I'm talking about my body. Okay, I'm talking about my body. And went now, one more verse here, and then I'm going to save the rest for an, uh, a little later. When therefore he was risen from the dead, now this is looking ahead to when after the crucifixion. This is, 
This is at the beginning of his ministry. So we got three years to go yet. And then will come the crucifixion, okay? When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. Now watch. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. There's an equating here of the word scripture and what Jesus says. Okay? This is all one picture. It's all one thing. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. And all of this was done to provide a fresh start. All of this, what we've just talked about, this cleansing of the temple, was done at the beginning of his ministry, okay, to provide a fresh start for his ministry. He's going to get them all kicked out. He's going to get rid of the money changing tables. He's going to get, which by the way, they were cheating people left and right with the money transfers. And you got to have temple money, funny money. You got to have, you know, monopoly money in order to play this, you know, this, this sacrifice game. You can't use your real money. You got to have temple money. Okay. Kind of like monopoly. Okay. And it's just, they were, they were fussing with stuff and they were cheating people left and right. And this was Judaism. That's why I say from the very beginning, Judaism had to be known as being deficient. And that's why this was happening at the beginning of his ministry. The reason it happened at the end is because they didn't take it seriously. Okay? Okay. To provide a fresh start for his ministry. Still, the same thing was needed at the end right before the cross. And that's because they didn't do what he said. They didn't stick with it. I mean, he kicked everything out, but they moved right back in again. Okay? When I go to a funeral home, they generally have some kind of podium or stand, and it's got a book there. Now, that's owned by the family. The family has paid for that, or if they hadn't yet, they were going to. And in that book, you sign. Now, Cindy and I, we generally went together on all these things, and she would put a scripture on her line of signing, and I would put a scripture on my line of signing. I often wrote Psalm 105, verses 1 through 4, or it, it, sometimes I would write it out, or at least a couple verses of it, or sometimes maybe just the reference itself, okay? But also, I would write the notation Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, okay? Right next to my name. Now, when the family gets together after the fact. And it may not be that day, and it may not be the next day, but sometime down the road, the family gets together and goes through all these things. And they read these things, including those scriptures. And that's why I like to write it out myself, okay? So I, a lot of times we'll have a small Bible in my pocket, and I'll get it out and make sure I get all the words right and so forth, Okay? But this Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 is pretty famous. It is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We've got that scripture planted right over the doorway in our kitchen, 
in a, in a plaque, a wooden carved out plaque, trust in the Lord, about that big, that long, right above the kitchen door going into the dining room. Okay? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, it doesn't say all that because it's just a plaque. Okay, but it starts it off. And then people will sometimes, I, probably I would imagine, they get out their Bibles and they look these things up. That's why I like to write them out as best I can. But you only got one line. <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard to get the whole thing there. But anyway, you try. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. And in all your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. Okay? Don't lean on your own understanding. So how does that work? What does this really mean? Well, here, here's how it works. It works like this. I'm nothing. He's everything. I'm nothing. That's, and uh, there are people that object to hearing that. They don't want to hear this stuff. They think because Jesus loves them that that makes them something. No, you're missing the point. Jesus loves you because you're unlovable. I mean, the Bible says, the Bible says clearly there's only one that's good, and that's God. And of course, he was expecting them to recognize that he's God. So, you know, why do you call me good, he said. You know, teacher. You know, good teacher, the guy said. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Yeah, well, he's God. Okay. I'm nothing, and so are you. And there are people who would get bothered by hearing that. They would, their ego would be smarting, I suppose you could say. But it really shouldn't be. God wants you and me to become nothing. To recognize that even in our relationship with him, he is everything. Now, if he is everything, then we can't be anything. Amen? Okay, if he's everything, then we can't be anything. We are in him. God wants you and me to become nothing. Then we will understand that he is everything. Dr. William Newell was teaching the Bible at a mission in China and was leaving to return to America. And he spoke with the director of the mission and said in a rather pious voice, he says, oh, please pray that I shall become nothing. And the director of the China Inland Mission laughed and said, Newell, you are nothing. Take it by faith. <laughs> All right? The secret to being sure that you... See, otherwise, you got pride. If I'm something, then that's pride. I mean, that's, even, that's pride. What else is it? We're not supposed to be prideful. We're supposed to be thankful. Thankful that God is everything. Amen? It's a good thing. The secret to being sure that you are in the middle of God's will is to understand that you are nothing. You came from dust. In a short period of time, you'll be nothing more than just a vapor. All right? And with this understanding, you can empty your life of self-importance and pride and simply say, Lord Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Besides that, if you're filled with pride, how are you going to get the Spirit in there? 
you can't, how, where are you going to jam them in? You know? No, we're to be emptied. We're to be nothing. Okay. Lord Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I have no agenda of my own. I just want you, Lord. Then God can take your nothingness and my nothingness and make everything beautiful of it that he can use and that he can bless. God makes everything out of nothings. In fact, that's what creation is. Well, people misunderstand that a lot. They think creation is, you know, he took something, formed it, and there it is. Now, he did that with man in the sense that he took that clay, he took that, you know, and shaped it, okay? But the Bible says that he created. And created means to make something out of nothing. That's what the definition is. I can't change it just to make people be happy, okay? That's what it means. Praise God. The question is, are we willing to call on him and to receive what he deems best for us? Okay? Because he's everything and we aren't. Okay? We aren't. So why is this crucial to understand? Well, look at those last three verses that I didn't read yet. Okay? Are you there? In John 2... Okay, last three verses, 23, 24, and 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. When they did, the, when they saw, rather, the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Jesus did not give up everything to everybody's understanding, you know, and expect them to be able to get it. Commit himself means, it's a Greek word, pistuo, and it actually is the word for faith. In other words, to have faith in or to trust. He did not put his faith and his trust into people because he knew them. Now, it's important to recognize this because he knows that until they're saved, until they're born again, you know, he knew, the Bible says that God is not a liar like everybody else. You know, I mean, he did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He knew what was really in their hearts and, and they're not saved yet, okay? Verse 25, and needed, and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. He knew where the heart was and they're not saved yet okay so it's not a good thing okay I don't know that he could get any more conspicuous than that I don't know that it could get any more obvious than that when he spoke he was the living word expressing the written word I've so told you that many times before this Bible is the written word this is not Jesus this book is not Jesus. Oh, it's about Jesus to be sure, but this is not Jesus. This is the written word. He is the living word. Different thing. Okay? 
He's the living word expressing the written word. And yet, some people see him as the expression of negativity. That he says no to about everything. Anything you seem to want or need or approach him with or whatever, he's there to say no. That's what, that's what a lot of people think. That is Jesus' big word, okay? That no, mm -mm. no. But it's just the opposite. The Bible says that he is the yea and the amen. He is the yes of God. All right? Story is told. True story. Happened many years ago. A man was trying to get across a river on foot. He didn't have a horse with him with little or no success. He did spot a man on horseback, he took one look at him, and he said, please let me ride over with you on the back of your horse. I, I need to cross this river here at this place where you are about to cross. Sure enough, the rider stopped, lifted him up, swung his leg over the, you know, the back of the horse and sat behind the man. The rider lifted him up and took him across the river. The man on the horse was Abraham Lincoln. Was Abraham Lincoln. When they reached the other side, those gathered on the bank who had witnessed this act of kindness, they said, oh, you just wanted the president to take you across. That's why you didn't ask me. That's why you didn't ask me. That's why you didn't ask. They all went around. You know, that's why you didn't ask us. Because you wanted to be special. You wanted... <laughs> Talk about a self-esteem message, right? Uh, you wanted the president to take you across, didn't you? And, and the rest of us, we weren't good enough. But the man shook his head and said, no, I didn't even recognize Mr. Lincoln. I didn't know it was him. See, he evidently didn't have his big top hat on because that would have been a clue. You see a guy with a long coat and a, and a top hat, you know, you pretty well know that's Lincoln, <laughs> I suppose. Anyway, his answer was met with disbelief. And then, why did you single him out? Why did you ask just him instead of all the other riders? We're all here to cross the river. We were all going to go over. And without hesitating, the man replied, well, that's pretty easy. He had a yes face. He had a yes face, and I saw it right away. I knew he wouldn't tell me no. And the question is, as Christians, aren't we to have yes faces? Now, I don't mean you don't stand against sin. Of course you do. But that's saying yes to God. And you're not saying yes to Satan. So you, there's still a coming against the false stuff. Okay, that's important too. But the, the yes is the other side of the coin, namely Jesus. Praise God. So are you approachable? Am I approachable? Do strangers ever ask us for directions? I'll never forget numerous times Cindy and I would be out in the yard. We're doing yard work, raking out the leaves and so forth from out behind the bushes and so forth and so on. And somebody would pull up, stop right there near us, roll down their window and say something. i get closer so, you know, or she would get closer if she was happened to be closer, and she would ask what you know what, and he the guy would need directions, and Cindy would always call me over, 
because she knew that she was directionally challenged. <laughs> okay, She wasn't familiar with names of roads and all that kind of stuff. Now, back when we were at uh, Slate Lake, I was all over these roads. I was all over all these roads, you know, Mackville Road and, and all of them and Van Dyke and, and, and knew where every, I knew where a lot of things were because I had been on those roads. I had gone over, I cut through the countryside like you guys do to get to Butler. I knew all those roads. I knew all the, but I go now and it's like, <laughs> I'm not quite sure where I am because I haven't been doing it all these years, okay? But these people would stop and they'd ask for directions and I could generally tell them, you know, where somebody was. Like, I knew the person who used to have, see, they get confused because my address was used by somebody else for a while at 135, okay? He's down at the other end of the road and he lives in a converted barn, okay? Sure, it's very nice, but it shaped like a barn. Anyway, uh, so I, I could send him down that way because, you know, I would know where some people were and I would know where some roads are and so forth, okay? Are we approachable? Well, she would always call me over because she would know for sure just where this, sometimes maybe she would, but you know, a lot of times she was, she, she knew that she didn't have that, uh, you know, that uh, knowingness of uh, road names and so forth. So do strangers ever ask you for directions? Do friends ask you for help? Peter and John must have had a yes face because they came into that temple and that lame beggar at the beautiful gate of the temple singled them out to ask them for alms. But he got more than he bargained for. Peter and John were willing to help, but not the way the beggar figured. You know, he wanted gold and silver. And that's why the disciples said, gold and silver, we don't have it. In fact, it would probably be that he had more than they did. He'd been begging all day and all week and all his life, and he probably had, you know, bags and so forth of, of this stuff from people. Um, Peter told him that he had no gold, he had no silver, but he was willing to give them what they did have, and that was Jesus. And in particular, Jesus' healing. Jesus' healing. In the name of Jesus Christ, and I love this, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. I told you last week, this would be a challenge for Jesus. Set before him by God himself, that he would be called a Nazarene. He would be from Nazareth, and a lot of people wouldn't like that. A lot of people wouldn't like that. Okay? Should be from Bethlehem. Should be from Jerusalem, or whatever. But it oftentimes says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's when he said, walk. <laughs> and the guy got up and walked. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he bounced around a bit too as well, you know, jumping and, and loving God. The truth is the beggar at the gate had more gold, most likely, than Peter or John even put together. But they had something that he needed more than money. Jesus has a yes face, and his followers will have yes faces too. Peter, you know, the disciples, Peter and John, Nathaniel, Philip, all of them, they would have yes faces too. He is willing to help when we call on him. But he knows better than we do what our true needs are. 
So the question is, are we willing to call on him and to receive what he deems best for us? See, you might think what you want from him, but he knows better. Maybe you need this instead. Glory to God. Even so, Jesus, it makes clear in these last three verses that Jesus did not put his trust in people. He put his trust in God. Pistuo is that word that's used, and it literally means faith. Okay, He had faith in God. He put his trust in God. He didn't put it in people. He knew the spirit that was in man, and he didn't trust it. Amen? Yes, he knew that he knew what was in people. But that doesn't mean he would yell at the top of his lungs that he had had it. I'm fed up like that golfer, you know. I'm gonna, not going to quit golf. <laughs> heavens, heavens to Murgatroyd. No, I'll quit the ministry. <laughs> He's going to give it all up? Not a chance. It would actually spur him on. Jesus I'm talking about. The very next thing would be his encounter with you know who, <laughs> Nicky baby, Nicodemus. Okay, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It had, if it hadn't been for God, it would be an impossible life. That's what I'm saying. The impossibility of the Christian life. Thank God for Jesus who is the light of the world. And through him and by him we can see and feel all the way. All the way to the end of the road. Continuing the journey. See there's still a journey. We're not done yet. Amen. We are not done yet. We're working our way to the Lenten season. And in that, we're going to see how Jesus lit the way. Lit the way. Made it obvious. Made it conspicuous. All the way through. Glory be to God. Amen? Okay, praise God. All right, would you pray with me, please? Father, I want to thank you, dear God, for this, for this day. You have given your heart uh, in this time. And I do pray, dear God, that you'll have your way uh, with each and every one of us, that we will see our need to surrender to what you're calling for. And, and we thank you for that. We do thank you for that. And we love you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory, dear God. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen.